Let's take our Bibles and turn to Psalm 51 this morning. Psalm 51. One of the saddest things for any person to experience is to cry out and not to be heard. When I was six years old, I remember getting ready to go fishing with my dad. He was digging for some bait at one side of the house. I was at the other side of the house waiting by the car. And for some reason, I decided to climb into the open trunk of the car. I thought this would be a great place to hide. Got nothing else to do. So I did. As I laid there, I thought, you know, it would be a much better hiding place and no one would ever find me if I just closed the lid. And this is before the lid, you know, the glow-in-the-dark lid that you can let yourself out of now. And so I did. And when I closed that, I realized I had done something terribly wrong. I was trapped. And so I pounded on the inside of that trunk lid and cried out as loud as I could for what seemed to be an eternity. And finally, I heard my sister come to the car and say, Dad, I think Craig's in the trunk. (laughs) When you're in desperate need and you cry out, you want someone to hear. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 66, verse 18, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. But verily God hath heard me and hath attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, which hath not turned away my prayer nor his mercy from me. A heart that regards or hides iniquity will cry out and not be heard. Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. We've been studying the topic of prayer on Sunday morning this year about asking, seeking, knocking with the promise that when we do, God answers. But there's this matter of sin that the Bible brings up that affects how those answers take place. God will not hear because of sin that is unconfessed. This morning, I'd like us to look at this psalm, Psalm 51, and learn how to have fellowship restored by confession of sin. Title of the message, Whiter Than Snow. Now, I wrote that message before we had our snowstorm yesterday morning, so don't blame me for that. But it is a great uh, illustration of how our sins can be made whiter, our lives whiter than snow. The heading to the psalm helps us understand the grievous sin of David and the sorrow that filled his heart in true repentance. It says to the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. The story of David's fall is found in 2 Samuel chapter 11. In chapter 12, we have Nathan the prophet coming to him to confront him about his sin. And in that confrontation, he told a story about a man who was wealthy and had, he had many flocks, many herds. But when a traveler showed up at his door, he took the poor neighbor's one ewe lamb that was his family's pet. The passage says that it grew up with him and his children, this, this lamb. It ate what they ate. It even drank from the man's own cup. It slept with them. It was like one of the family. Many of you are nodding your heads saying, I could see how that would happen. I have a pet that sleeps with me. We won't go there. One night, 
This wealthy neighbor had visitors, and in order to provide a meal for them, he stole the lamb and served it for dinner. And David heard that story, and he was incensed. And he said, the man deserved to die, and the poor man should be compensated with four more lambs. Now that's what Deuteronomy tells us, or Exodus chapter 22, verse 1, the law was to be compensated by four. But David went beyond the law in his anger and said the man needed to be executed. It's interesting how sinners often condemn others beyond what is required by God. But Nathan said the words that brought that point home, Thou art the man. And when David was confronted with, with his sin, he didn't start to make excuses. You know, it's, it's no big deal. I'm the king. I can do whatever I want. He admitted his sin. He responded by true repentance. And Psalm 51 is a record of that penitential prayer. So if you're struggling with some unconfessed sin this morning in your life, and you want to know how to find God's mercy, how to find his forgiveness, follow the same steps that David had through this psalm. Now most of us will say, well, we compare it to what David did, and a message like this doesn't strike home because we think, well, we, we weren't that bad. Uh, this was adultery, after all. Uh, this was murder of Uriah, after all. I remind, remind you what Jesus taught in Matthew, that hatred in the heart is like murder, same as murder. Adultery is the same as lust in the heart. And so let's, be, let's make the application that the Lord wants us to make as we go through this passage. Notice the steps of genuine repentance in verses 1 through 12. He prayed for mercy first. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David threw himself on the mercy of God. That's how he started. He didn't say, you know, I deserve another chance. He said, I admit my sin. I know that I've done wrong. Be merciful to me, a sinner. And we dare not ask God to forgive us based on our own worth or on our value. We're guilty. We all deserve that punishment. It's just. Our only hope is found in the character and nature of God. And in this case, he throws himself on God's mercy. He describes God's mercy with three words. You see them in our text in the English with mercy, loving kindness, and tender mercies. The first word, mercy, is a word that means to bend or to stoop to, in kindness to an inferior, to bestow favor. It's the feeling that you have that makes you hurt for someone else, someone you love. I think, when I think of this word, I think of the caregiver who's bent over that loved one in a hospital bed. That's mercy. He also calls on God's loving kindness, another word, covenant loyalty. It's the overwhelming goodness and compassion that someone has based on a promise that was made to them. And the third word is tender mercies. These are feelings of compassion, a tender love, pity, mercy. It's the kind of mercy that a, that a mother has for her child. Notice these tender mercies are described, and in that word mercies, it's in the plural, with the S on the end. It's also in the Hebrew, it's plural. 
And David goes a step further and he says that there's a multitude of these mercies. There are many. Aren't you glad that you cannot exhaust God's mercy? Do you have a multitude of sins that need to be forgiven? God has a multitude of mercies that can forgive. David used three words to describe his sin in these two verses. He uses another word in verse 4. He first of all uses the word transgression. That's that's the sin of the high hand, literally. It's a rebellion against God. Last week in our Bible reading, if you're going through the Bible, the scripture reading with the church, we read in Numbers chapter 15, verse 30, but the soul that doth aught presumptuously, is in the context of talking about ignorant sins, sinning without thinking about it, without remembering that there was a law against it, those sins ignorantly, and then in contrast to that, these presumptuous sins whether he be born in the land or a stranger or uh, the same reproacheth the Lord, and that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Now, maybe you read that in a different translation this week. And when you came to that word presumptuously, it read in your text with a high hand. What, What it's saying is that kind of a transgression, that kind of a sin, is saying to God, I don't care what you say, and you raise your fist in God's face, as it were. I'm going to just rebel. I'm going to go against what I know to be told to be a sin, against I know to be what you want me to live. So we have that word transgression here. David also calls it an iniquity. That's, that's an evil perversity. Sometimes it's, it's also used for the punishment, that, that same word. It's the iniquity and it's the punishment. And then there's that word sin. It's a word that's used of an offense, a crime, whether it's a habitual offense or something that's just committed once. You go down to verse 4, there's another word that David uses, it's the word evil. It's, It's a moral wrong, evil in thy sight. And so David is using a vocabulary that shows us he's admitting what he has done wrong. He's not just excusing it. It's an amazing thing to see how people just call things uh, other, uh, with other terms. Uh, I, I was weak. I, I made a mistake. I, I shouldn't have done that probably. Uh, no, David just confronted that. He, he admitted. And isn't it interesting, in 1 John 1, 9, we have that word, if we confess our sins. The word confess in the New Testament is hama legeo, to say the same thing. It's to agree with God, to call your sin what God calls it. And so that's what's being done here. David is, is using, he's, he's using the terminology, God calls what I've done sin, transgression. The solution is given for each sin also in three words, blot out my transgression. To blot out means to rub out the numbers, to, to wet your finger and, and Wipe it against the the ink that's on the page until that ink disappears or you'll have a hole in the page. It's to blot out that transgression so it no longer remains on the ledger. He also says, wash me from mine iniquity. The word wash there is to, to agitate. If you think back about how clothes used to be washed to get the water and the soap into the fabric of that material, you had to, to push it in to agitate that. Wash me from mine iniquity, he says. 
Cleanse me from my sin. To cleanse means to make pure. It's a word that would have to do with a, a leper who comes to the priest and, and he, he comes back again. He returns to see if the leprosy was gone. And if it is, he's pronounced pure, pronounced clean. David wants that. So he prayed for mercy. Step two, he confessed his sin, verses three through six. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. David teaches us here about what confession, genuine confession, looks like. It comes after conviction. In verse 3, I acknowledge my transgression. My sin is ever before me. He couldn't escape it. He would wake up in the middle of the night and, and wander the palace halls, and that sin would be on his mind. How could I have done that? People try to escape that conviction that they wake up with in the middle of the night with a lot of different things today. Just turn the music up a little bit louder. Just give me something that I can medicate myself so that I can forget it for a while. Let me get wrapped up with my life in other things so I just don't think about it. David says, my sin is ever before me. In order to confess, there is that recognition, there is that conviction. Shakespeare in Richard III says, my conscience has a thousand several tongues and every tongue brings in a several tale, and every tale condemns me for a villain. Secondly, confession recognizes the divine standard of right and wrong. Not only is there conviction, but there's this recognition that there is a standard. God has a standard of what is right and what is sin, what is wrong. Sin is primarily against God. He sinned, yes, against Bathsheba, she was Uriah's wife. He sinned against Uriah by causing death. He sinned against his family. He brought shame. He sinned against the kingdom of Israel. He weakened that kingdom. But ultimately, all sin is against God. And he recognizes that. Against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this wickedness in thy sight. Every sin that you commit is a direct rebellion against God. He created you for his glory. That's why we confess our sins to God. He's the only one who can forgive sin. He's the only mediator that we need to go to. Uh, that is Jesus Christ, 1 Timothy 2.5. For there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. You don't confess your sin to another human being. People think that if I do that, if I tell someone else, I'll feel better. And you do for a while, but your sin is still there. They can't forgive you. You don't need a priest to intercede for you. The only mediator that you need is Jesus Christ. You don't pray to saints. You don't pray to Mary. God is the one who can forgive your sin. Pray to him. God is the absolute standard of truth. Notice in four, uh, verse 4, the second half of the verse, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and clear when thou judgest. God is justified by his words. His words are always true. When thou judgest, God is justified in his judgments. His decisions are always right. You can't argue with him. 
Man is totally depraved. Notice in verse, th- verse 5, we're depraved from birth. I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's talking about his own sinful nature, even in the womb, at his birth. We are born sinners. We don't become sinners the first time that we do something wrong. We do things wrong because we're already sinners. Confession comes when we recognize that God wants us to be honest. Verse 6, Behold, thou desirest truth in, my, in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. We're to be honest with God. We admit our own sin. We agree with him. Confession is an open and honest admission of sin. And so we sense this conviction of sin. We see God's standard of right and wrong, and we are honest with God. That's the confession. And now notice in verses 7 through 12, he asked for forgiveness. He prayed for mercy, he confessed his sin, and now he asked for forgiveness, verses 7 through 12. He wanted God to cleanse him. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Hyssop grows commonly in Jerusalem. It can grow right there in Jerusalem on the temple walls. It can grow out in the desert. Um, it's mentioned 11 times in the Bible. It was used particularly in the pa- at the Passover. It was the, the, the hyssop that was dipped into the blood at the threshold of the door and sprinkled on the doorpost and lintel. And so David is referring to this, this application of the blood when he's talking about purging him with hyssop. The blood of Jesus Christ is the only thing that can wash away our sins. Purge me. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Verse 2 said, wash me and cleanse me. The same words are used in reverse order here in verse 7. Cleanse me or purge me and wash me. The extent of the cleansing is seen in that phrase, whiter than snow. There's something about that freshly fallen snow, especially when the sun's shining. It's just brilliant. It's blinding. It's unspoiled. It reflects the light because of its white appearance. And that's the way your life can be. Not just as bright as snow, but whiter than snow. God can wash you. He can cleanse you. He can restore that purity in your life. David prayed for God to give joy and gladness through his brokenness in verse 8. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. He wanted to hear this joy, hear gladness. I think of that perhaps as a song or laughter. When you have some unconfessed sin in your life, that's missing. That song that you used to have, you used to sing, just doesn't spring up in your voice anymore. The believer who sins doesn't lose his salvation. He loses his song. He's the most miserable person in the world. You talk to a sinner who's sinning, they're having fun. That's what they, that's what they do. You talk to a believer who's following Christ, doing, walking in obedience to him as much as possible. They're rejoicing in their life and walking with him. The most miserable person in the world is the person who says they're a Christian, but they're still living in sin. Notice, it's striking here, that God is the one who brought the brokenness. The bones which thou hast broken can rejoice. 
It's God who desires you to come back to him, and sometimes he reaches down, and there is a breaking process in your life to get your attention. And by the time that he brings you back and confession is, is made in your heart and things are restored, that, that fellowship is restored, then there's the joy. David wanted his sins to be forgiven, erased. In verse 9, hide thy face from my sins. Blot out all mine iniquities. Don't look at them. Turn from them. Blot them out. That's the second time he uses that word in this request. Don't let one of them be left on the ledger. Make sure they're all gone. He wanted God to give him a clean heart and a right spirit. Verse 10, David prayed for God to create a clean heart in him. That's where his problem had started. That lust began in his heart. Jeremiah 17.9 tells us the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That's where it started. Does your heart desire the wrong things? Ask God to give you, create in you a, a new heart. Does it deceive you into thinking that you, the pursuits that you're involved in are okay? Ask him to create in you a new heart. He prayed for a right spirit to be renewed in him. The word renewed there is an interesting word. It's used a couple of times in scripture. In 2 Chronicles 15, 8, Asa uses it when it says, he renewed the altar to the Lord, an altar of sacrifice, of worship. He renewed it. In 2 Chronicles 24, 4, Joash says, was minded to repair the house of the Lord. So what is, what is he saying when he says, renew that spirit within me? Go back to the place where your fellowship with the Lord was broken. Pick up the stones. Rebuild that altar of devotion to him. Renew that spirit. Repair it. He didn't want to be separated from God. Verse 11, cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. David feared being banished from the presence of God or having God's spirit leave him. Now remember, in the Old Testament economy or dispensation, the Holy Spirit could be withdrawn. 1 Samuel 16, 14, the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. Today, the Holy Spirit is the earnest, the promise, the seal of our salvation. We don't lose the Spirit of God as, as a believer. We can never do that. You're always his child. It, it will not separate your affect your relationship as a child of God, but it will affect your fellowship with him. You won't have that joy, that peace, that guidance that God intends for you to have. So David wanted his joy to be restored. Notice, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. We saw in verse 8, the believer doesn't lose his salvation. He loses that sound of joy or the, the song of joy and gladness. Now in verse 12, he doesn't lose his salvation, he loses the joy of his salvation. He didn't want to sin again. I find that very interesting in verse 12. Uphold me with thy free spirit. The free, the word there, means generous. God is generous in giving his spirit to us. And he's, he says, uphold me. Don't let me fall again into that sin. Keep me from falling by your generous spirit and so those are the steps of genuine repentance pray for mercy 
Confess your sin. Ask God for forgiveness. And notice the results in the rest of the chapter here. The results of knowing God's forgiveness. And if we would just stop and recognize the blessings that God wants to bring into our lives that are, that are kept from happening, kept from coming because of sin, we would keep shorter accounts with our sin. David's ministry was affected because of God's forgiveness, verse 13. He could now serve once he's forgiven. Verse 13, then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. When your sins are confessed, when you have that right relationship or right fellowship with Christ, then you'll have a burden to tell others about God and his, his salvation, his redemption. Cleansing had the same effect on Isaiah. Remember in Isaiah 6, after his lips were purged, he said, here am I, send me. You won't be hindered in doing what God wants you to do. Is there some sin keeping you from being an effective witness for Christ? Sin often makes a person introspective. Uh, you'll always be thinking about, about yourself. Forgiveness changes all that. You'll, you'll focus on other people. How can they know Christ? And so David could serve now because he's forgiven. David could offer praise to God once his sins were forgiven. Verses 14 and 15. Once he's delivered from the guilt of his sin, he now has that liberty to praise. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. Deliver me from blood guiltiness. He's probably talking about a capital offense here. And in fact, he did deserve that because of the death of Uriah that he had orchestrated. Notice the salvation from God. Look at what David calls God in the middle of verse 14. O God, thou God of my salvation. If you need salvation, there's only one person who can give that, and that's God. The God of my salvation. Wonderful terminology here for the Lord. Salvation is personal. The God of my salvation. No one else can believe for you. No one else can repent of sin and come to Christ but you. It's your salvation. He can be the God of your salvation if you repent and turn to him and accept him as your savior today. Notice the sacrifice of praise. You can't praise God when there's unconfessed sin in your life. Verse 14, he says, my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. Verse 15, when the Lord opened his lips, David said, my mouth shall show forth thy praises. David could now praise God because he's forgiven. And also, David could sacrifice to God once he was forgiven. Verses 16 through 19, the end of the chapter. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. But that's what God designed in the Old Testament. Why does he not delight in that now? Well, he, he tells us in verse 17, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness. With burnt offering and whole burnt offering, then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. Oh, I, I, I understand what he's saying. 
If my heart is far from the Lord, it doesn't matter if I'm putting money in the offering plate, if I'm showing up at church every time the doors are open, if I'm carrying my Bible. All of these things are good, but they don't matter if I'm not right with the Lord. If my sins are confessed and I am forgiven, then I can come with those sacrifices and out of love and out of devotion give those back to God. That's pleasing to him. But doing things never is the way to please God. When you want to please God, then those are natural results of that love that you have for him. God is merciful. You may be here this morning, and the Holy Spirit of God has been doing his convicting work, just as David was convicted, walking those palace halls, recognizing what he had done. Maybe instead of Nathan the prophet saying, Thou art the man, it's the Holy Spirit that's been putting his finger on what is wrong in your relationship, in your fellowship with Christ. You know it as clearly as David did, that you're guilty. God is merciful. We have that verse in 1 John 1, 9, how that if we're to have forgiveness and cleansing, it comes through confession of sin. It's written to believers. If we confess our sins, John includes himself in that concept of needing to ask forgiveness. Notice that little word if at the very beginning. God stands ready just as the prodigal father or the the father of the prodigal son stood ready to forgive his son, waiting. God is waiting for you. But you need to confess your sin if we confess our sins. Do you want that burden lifted? Do you want that guilt removed? Do you want that unbroken fellowship with Christ? Come as David did. Confess your sins to God. David could have said, you know, I've blown it. I give up. I'm a failure. Or he could have said, it's not that bad. I'm the king. I have the right to do whatever I want to. But he responded to Nathan's accusation with honesty. He admitted his sin. He cried out for God's mercy. Will you do the same this morning? Cry out to him. He'll hear you when you cry. Let's bow for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this chapter in our Bibles. It helps us because many of us are there or have been there. And we have recognized the way back to a restored fellowship with our Savior is through confession of sin. And I pray that if there's something in someone's heart today, you know hearts, we don't. And if there's something keeping them, hindering them from the full joy of their salvation, I pray that they'll take care of that even today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.